Welcome to my mommy's podcast. This episode is sponsored by Fabletics. So here's the deal. If you are anything like me and you pretty much work out five to six days a week and sauna daily, you go through an incessant amount of gym clothes like I do every day, which also means loads and loads of dirty laundry. And I found myself for a while because I was traveling so much, always buying more gym wear to avoid the issue. But I'm also not willing to shell out hundreds of dollars for the really pricey types of gym wear. I'm not going to name names, but I was tired of cheap gym wear that wore out quickly with lots of washing. My solution to this predicament is a brand called Fabletics. If you haven't heard of them, I think you're missing out because it's a fashion-focused activewear brand that was founded by Kate Hudson with a mission to empower women by making a healthy, active lifestyle accessible to everyone because of the exceptional price point and because these pieces are super cute and versatile. So no matter if you are ready to go to hot yoga class or crush it in CrossFit or just go for a stroll in the park, Fabletics has you covered and they carry gym gym wear that is suitable for any type of workout. And plus they're cute enough, I find myself wearing their clothes everywhere, not just to work out. Um, I'll just throw on one of their pullover tops for a cute outfit. Before I forget to tell you, Fabletics is offering an incredible deal that you don't want to miss. You can get two pairs of leggings for only $24, which is a $99 value when you sign up as a VIP. You can go to fabletics.com forward slash wellness mama to take advantage of the deal. That's F-A-B-L-E-T-I-C-S dot com forward slash wellness mama to get two leggings for only $24 and free shipping on orders over $49. International shipping is available and there's absolutely no commitment to purchase with your first order. You can check it out and you can cancel anytime if you're not super happy. Check it out fabletics.com forward slash wellness mama. This episode is brought to you by Genexa, the first ever organic and non-GMO medicines that use patented technology to create formulas that work without the dyes, the artificial sweeteners, or the harsh preservatives that are found in some medicines. The company was founded by two dads on a mission to find better products for their own kids. I love the commitment to quality that Genexa has, and I love how well their products work. One of my faves is their homeopathic Arnica tablets. I recently got back into powerlifting and running, and the first few weeks, okay, the first few months were a little rough. Their their Arnica Advantage and the Pain Crush Tropical cream that they have were a lifesaver for, for me during those months. To shop those and their full line of organic and non-GMO medicines, you can go to genexa.com forward slash wellness mama and use the code wellness for 20% off of your order. Again, that's G-E-N-E-X-A.com forward slash wellness mama with the code wellness for 20% off of your order. Hello and welcome to the Wellness Mama podcast. I'm Katie from wellnessmama.com and today will be all about CBD, which I get so many questions about because I am here with Will Clyden, who is the founder of Ojai Energy. He founded it in 2014, and his goal was to provide the purest, healthiest, and most ethically produced cannabinol or CBD on the market, and basically to give people a viable supplement for living the healthiest life possible. Four years later, his business is doing just that, and they're using the science-driven organic nutraceutical to achieve optimal physical health. We're going to delve into why this is actually such an important compound and why most of us are not getting it enough. But Will, welcome and thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Katie. Well, I know I've gotten to jump in and kind of geek out with you on this topic before, and you are so well-versed in it. So I want to make sure we maximize our time. And to start, can you walk us through what the endocannabinoid system is and what exactly it does in the body? Yes. So, uh, 
basically we've got these uh, receptors called cannabinoid receptors in our body. And it's actually, we have receptors in every single system of our body from skeletal <clears throat> to digestive to respiratory, cardiovascular, reproductive, nervous system. Every single system has endocannabinoid receptors and including at a cellular level, <clears throat> um, we've got cannabinoid receptors in every cell as well. Uh, so from systemic to cellular, we've got these receptors and the functionality of the system is to uh, maintain homeostasis for the entire body and all of the systems. Um, and homeostasis means that everything is operating at the right level and firing at the right time. So you can think of it as like the conductor for the symphony of our body. Uh, and so arguably it is the most important system in that its job is to make sure every other system is running at optimal levels. And one of the ways that it does this is through buffering oxidative stress. And so oxidation is like rust for our cells and our body. And so the more we oxidize, ultimately oxidation is what, um, it is spare accidents or trauma is what causes us to die and age. And so its function, uh, one of the ways that it maintains balance in all these systems is to make sure that when oxidation and an oxidative uh, event comes in, which is stress essentially, uh, whether it's physical or emotional, that it blocks the effects and, and kind of buffers them out. And so as modern humans, we're facing uh, more consistent oxidative stress than any other generations on the planet. Uh, we used to have like a saber-toothed tiger where you'd have a bump up in oxidation for a couple minutes and, and, and hopefully you get away. Whereas now um, we're bombarded 24-7 from um, petrochemicals and industrial exposure to actually the amount of information overload and how many choices that we have as modern humans. So they actually ran a study showing that when we have to pick between more than six options, there's a notable oxidative stress response in the body. So our grandparents would grow tomatoes that were organic. There was no, you didn't have to call it organic. Everything was organic two generations ago uh, and then make the tomato sauce or can them or whatever. Now you go into the grocery store, you've got 20 different options of, of ketchup and just needing to decide and pick creates a notable oxidative stress response. So it's just one out of many, many ways that we're getting hit with oxidation. So it's really more important than ever before to have a healthy endocannabinoid system. And so that is a good overview of, of what it is. I'd love to talk about the name a little bit too, because I've noticed a trend in some aspects of the health community of people kind of largely ignoring the endocannabinoid system or thinking it's not important because the name sounds like cannabis and they kind of lump it in with cannabis and of course all the like small controversy that can surround that. So I'd love if you could talk about like, what is this? Is this, is this some system that we've recently invented yeah. or was it just named based on what we were noticing in the literature? Like what is the history of this? Awesome question. Yeah. So every single vertebrae and then a couple non-vertebrates that we know of have endocannabinoid uh, systems. And so it's been around for quite a while. Um, however, humans have a particularly robust one and the way that it was named in the we need to come up with an easier sounding name um but it, endo meaning internal cannabinoid which are compounds i'll explain the etymology of that in a second and then system so basically it was discovered in 1991 
by an Israeli doctor. And we knew about cannabinoids or external cannabinoids, phytocannabinoids, well before the system was discovered. But essentially, he realized that if the predict, and it's named after the cannabis plant because cannabis has the highest concentration of phytocannabinoids by far than any other plant. But he realized if they're having a, an effect in the body, then they have to be targeting uh, receptors that exist in the body. So that led to the discovery of the endocannabinoid system. <clears throat> so it's relatively new, although predominantly in the United States due to the prohibition, it got largely unstudied and um, kind of pushed aside. And still, when we work with, uh, we work with all sorts of different MDs um, and it, it takes a minute for them to adjust to realize, well, why, why wasn't I taught this in medical school? But other countries such as Israel and Spain have been way advanced in terms of studies of the system for a long time. And in fact, CBD was discovered before the endocannabinoid system was discovered, and that's been rigorously studied for decades, predominantly outside of the United States. But the naming of the system is because these cannabinoids come are fr predominantly from the plant, and then we also actually produce them in our body, and we know of two, and one is called anandamide, named after the Sanskrit word for bliss, ananda, and that was named by um, the, the Israeli doctor who discovered it, and also the endocannabinoid system, and then also 2-AG, which is way less of a cool name, but uh, we know of two that we produce endogenously or in our body uh, that specifically work on the endocannabinoid system. Anandamide targets predominantly CB1, which is at a systemic level found mostly in the brain and the nervous system. And then 2-AG directly targets uh, CB2 receptors, which are in all the other uh, systems of the body. <clears throat> and then at a cellular level, every cell has both CB1 and CB2. So they interact from cellular to systemic uh, that we produce naturally. But turns out that we actually have co-evolved with this plant, the cannabis plant, for millennia. And it is one of, if not the first, plants that humans domesticated. Uh, it was documented in 10,000 BC in China as a, as a domesticated plant um, in all likelihood. And there's evidence showing pre-agricultural, one being 12,000, around 12,000 BC of pottery with um, the rope had degraded, but the, the, the fiber imprints left have been linked to likely to be from cannabis. Uh, rope, but essentially since 10,000 BC, then the Scythians found founded in China and Asia, where it seems to originate uh, from millions of years ago in that region. But the Scythians took it and brought it everywhere they went. There's well documentation that they were using it for um, their psychoactive purposes and the higher THC varieties, as well as for rope and food and fiber and medicine. And everywhere they went, they brought it. And then also anywhere that uh, the Vikings went, they took cuts of it from Caucasus Mountain regions uh, and, and spread it, as well as then the Scythians brought it to the Romans, who then brought it everywhere they colonized, uh, including Britain. And then uh, the UK, anywhere that they colonized, would then take cannabis. And it was actually required by law to grow uh, in Virginia and the colonies, um, one of the main uh, setups for the U.S. colonies was for hemp production. 
Uh, and so it's been the most ubiquitously used and spread plant in modern human history. And through every iteration of different, going from hunter-gatherer to agricultural, then from use for nautical ropes and exploration into the industrial era, it was used uh, for lubrication of machinery, oil varnish, as well as production of textile. And then up to the 40s, where we then artificially made it illegal and, and cut it completely from production in the States. But every single era that it was used, it was commonly fed as <clears throat> animal fodder as well. So I, anyone who was raising animals and, and domesticating plants, they would take the greens and they would give it to the, to the chickens or the pigs or the cows. Um, and so there was recently a study done in Colorado where they had hemp-fed chickens and they looked at the CBD content in the eggs from these hemp-fed chickens, and it was up to 1%. So we're talking a substantial amount of cannabinoids, and not just CBD. Um, there's CBC and CBG, and actually 110 different cannabinoids that we know of, and then 420 total um, compounds that we know of in the plants from terpenes and bioflavonoids. And stuff. So anyways, all of those are, are, were, were present in, in high amounts of CBD, in these eggs. So people have been consuming indirectly for thousands of years, these micronutrients. And it turns out that just like B vitamins in B12 in particular, uh, in our, we produce them in our gut from our uh, flora. We also need to have a dietary intake of B12 to have optimal levels. And it's actually no different with cannabinoids and CBD. Uh, so we artificially cut these uh, compounds out of our diet after thousands of years of evolving with this plant and then simultaneously went into the modern era where we upticked oxidation. So we essentially one, two punched ourselves and created artificial depletion in a mass scale. And so uh, everyone's endocannabinoid system, unless they are having a dietary intake of high CBD and, and a full spectrum of cannabinoids, not just ice. And, and I'll explain uh, what I mean by that in a second. But uh, if you do not have a dietary intake of these cannabinoids on a regular basis, like our ancestors did, and in this environment, you have a way low operating functional endocannabinoid system. And because the system's job is to regulate balance for all the other systems, it shows up differently on your epigenetics and your exposures but the results are pretty uh, unpleasant. And one of the main nutrient deficiencies we see due to an uh, idling endocannabinoid system is anxiety, pain, and sleep issues, which are kind of the trifecta of what faces modern humans. And when you get an adequate level of cannabinoids back in the system, those three go away uh, and stay away. So there's a direct link there. But that's kind of the why it's called the endocannabinoid system is because the cannabis plant's the primary producer of the external cannabinoids. We've co-evolved with it and it feeds the system and actually helps synergize with the cannabinoids that we produce internally. That's super fascinating. And for me, the light bulb moment and kind of when I realized how important this was, was realizing that I kind of compare it almost to magnesium, for instance. This is something that used to be in a much higher level in our food supply. It was something we were exposed to regularly. And then now because of modern practices, we aren't. Yeah. Same with CBD. It's when I finally understood, like this is something we were just naturally getting for pretty much all of history. And now we're not. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's super fascinating. Yeah, I think to clear up any confusion also, I think it's important to 
if you could explain the differences because it does get lumped in with just general cannabis, what the difference are between things like CBD and these molecules you're talking about. And for instance, just like medicinal cannabis, that's now legal in some states. Can you give us a distinction? Yeah. So it's a little bit, basically CBD is completely non-psychoactive. And one of the ways that it works in the body is it uh, lowers this enzyme called FAAH. And that enzyme is what peaks with an oxidative response. Uh, so it naturally buffers that out. And it turns out that FAAH destroys this compound called anandamide that we produce internally and uh, essentially keeps us in this negative feedback loop because the body tries to use the anandamide to buffer the oxidation. But when there's that response, the enzyme increases that destroys it. So without the dietary input of CBD, you're stuck in a, in a, in a negative feedback loop. And what it does is it actually, when you get it in at the right levels, it increases the half-life and circulation of anandamide in the body. Uh, that's just one of many mechanisms that it does. Um, but it, it's important to note that CBD by itself is vastly ineffective compared to CBD with the other cannabinoids, including trace amounts of THC uh, and then the terpenes and bioflavonoids because I liken CBD to like the trumpet section. It's loud, it's well-known, but CBD by itself is just the trumpets. And when you have a full spectrum uh, extract with high CBD in that, you've got the trumpet section with the entire symphony orchestra. Um, and so the guy who discovered the endocannabinoid system studied it and noted that CBD isolate by itself was vastly ineffective compared to the full spectrum. And he called it the entourage effect. Uh, so they all interact with each other in different receptors in the body in a very complex way that's we're just kind of scratching the surface of, of directly how, but we know some mechanisms quite well. Um, but the medical cannabis uh, and that what traditionally now CBD genetics are kind of entering the pool uh, from the past decade is basically when they got reintroduced, but they are high THC, low CBD. And what the body really needs to have a healthy endocannabinoid system is high CBD and low THC. That gives us homeostasis, whereas high THC and low or no CBD throws us out of homeostasis um, slightly, not terribly. Uh, um, it's a lot safer than alcohol, but it, but it does throw off the functioning of the endocannabinoid system, particularly in the brain, because THC uh, targets the CB1 receptors and we're already depleted in anandamide. And so it kind of, that's where the mental fogginess comes and, and some of the downsides of high THC, low CBD. So um, that is, it, it's kind of like tomatoes. There's different varieties of tomatoes. You can have beefsteak or you can have cherry tomatoes. Cannabis has different varietals, um, some with high CBD and low THC, others with uh, high THC and naturally occurring, it would all, there would always be a higher amount of CBD. Uh, and it was only when we had prohibition where people started selectively breeding for high THC uh, starting in the black market and then going into uh, medical that we were inadvertently breeding out the CBD, which was there to stabilize and counterbalance any negative effect of THC. Um, but cannabis itself, hemp is a legal definition, not a botanical definition. And so after prohibition, uh, because the U.S. needed for industrial purposes uh, and the rest of the world needed hemp because we relied on it for millennia, um, they had to come up with a way to distinguish psychoactive, uh, the, the recreational or drug side, from the industrial side. And so this guy in the 70s, who's a Canadian doctor or scientist, who said, basically, I'm drawing an arbitrary line 
at 0.3% less THC, uh, that's all hemp. Anything above 0.3, that is marijuana. Um, and he noted that this was an arbitrary line. The psychoactive concentration of THC is typically above 1% for most people. So the, the definition of hemp is well below the psychoactive threshold and high CBD low CBD actually counteracts some of the psychoactivity of the THC itself. So innately these higher ratios of high CBD, low THC is non-psychoactive. And that was the goal is to distinguish psychoactive versus um, THC that gets people high. Uh, so essentially what you really, the, the, the body doesn't care if it's coming from, if we call it hemp or not, it, what it wants to have an optimized system is a high level of CBD and below psychoactive threshold uh, presence of THC and then CBC and CBG uh, and, and a variety of other cannabinoids. Did that, did that, was that clear? That was, and you, I'd love if you could elaborate a little bit on the other cannabinoids, because like you said, yes. CBD, most people have at least heard of, a lot of people have tried. Yep. The other two, I feel like people don't even have a passing understanding of. Yeah, so um, they all work better when in conjunction, right? Um, not isolated, but essentially, we're, there's over 110. There's about 10 that people really have any clinical idea of what they do, Um CBG is known for uh, stimulation of bone repair, uh, neurogenesis in the brain, um, and it's got very strong antimicrobial properties. Uh, CBC is uh, known, for, has antimicrobial, it's been demonstrated for anti-mutagenic properties. Um, also, it's got a lot of promise for depression, and so... Those were the other two. CBN, uh, people may have heard of that. It, it's much more sedative uh, in nature and does a lot more than just that. But th that's kind of the, the all-star cast, right, currently. Um, and then there's the terpenes, which are uh, cannabinoids are made up of terpenes, but they're these uh, compounds that essentially the actives in essential oils um, but what cause things to smell and taste are terpenes, and they are uh, extremely important in the cannabis plant. Can can uh, cannabis and uh, hops, they're the only two cousins of the cannabaceae family, um, and they both produce the most kind of diverse range of different terpenes. So some can smell like oranges, and others can smell like diesel motor fuel, and some they're extremely diverse, and those are all the terpenes. And it turns out that uh, the terpenes serve as like uh, kind of like little conductors or bio like tugboats to the cannabinoids. And they go to where they, they have a set path. So like uh, limonene, which is in lemons and also cannabis, uh, smells that citrus smell that will target the brain as well as the gut predominantly. And so when you combine, when in the presence of the cannabinoids, it, they will attach to like the CBD and pull it and guide it towards the CB2 receptors of the gut and also receptors in the brain. Um, and then linalol, for example, uh, which is found in lavender predominantly in other plants, but uh, mostly found in lavender as well as cannabis, targets more on a calming and sedative uh, pathways in the body. 
And so that will take the CBD and direct it towards those types of receptors. And so the difference between um, strains that cause people to feel very relaxed versus others and couch locked or other strains that cause people to be much more focused and talkative and alert, typically they, they're not 100% accurately divided, but you can think of it as like indica versus sativa strains. Um, for intents and purposes, the, the only difference is really not the cannabinoid ratios. It's very minimal in variance, but, but it's the terpenes themselves. So that they're kind of the new emerging uh, stars in a way in that we can get very different effect in the body with the same cannabinoids, but use different terpenes um, to deliver co completely different results. And what's unique with uh, the process that we discovered is that we can get them into the body and the cannabinoids and, the, and the, the extract into the body immediately. And terpenes are best absorbed either through inhalation um, or uh, basically inhalation. So other people are, if they were uh, inhaling it through like a vaporizer versus even just putting it in your mouth or smelling it through your nose, you're actually, when you're tasting something, whether it's from cannabis or any type of terpene, it basically the best way to get into the blood is through inhalation. So if you're eating something, you're actually pulling these, they're, they're tiny little molecules they are slightly denser than gas. You're actually pulling them up into the olfactory through your, the, the mouth cavity, or if you're inhaling it directly straight up through the nose into the olfactory system, it crosses into the blood brain, it crosses the, the blood brain barrier and then gets into the hypothalamus and then goes where they're going to go. But so they basically immediately deploy. If you just eat them, they get, um, pretty much 100% destroyed. Now, cannabinoids, if you just eat a regular cannabinoid extract, like a fat-soluble uh, CBD, full-spectrum CBD is more absorbed than CBD isolate, um, but either way, at fat-soluble form, 90% uh, of it gets destroyed before it can be made water-soluble in the gut and then into the bloodstream. And it takes about 30 minutes for it to get into the blood. So with a regular CBD extract, it's 30 minutes before you really feel anything, but if you eat 20 milligrams, you're actually only absorbing two. Uh, the rest get destroyed and you pee them out, but you're paying for 100%. And the terpenes don't get really absorbed at all. And so what we've discovered is that because our formulation gets in immediately and is way more bioavailable, so you get, uh, meaning your body can use uh, way more of the uh, cannabinoids um, efficiently, but additionally, you can time it so that when you smell a particular terpene um, and you take the formula, the, the timing syncs up, they meet each other, and now you can curate essentially strains or targeted uh, deployment of the CBD and other cannabinoids to receptors in the body that you want. Um, and no other formulation can do that. So that's, I, I got excited. That's a discovery we made a couple of years ago, and it, um, we're getting some really cool responses with that. Yeah, I'd love for you to explain that a little bit more because uh, yeah. when I first met you, I had a chance to try this and you did something I think called a loading dose of like yes. basically getting up to a certain amount the body kind of gauges. And I was shocked because I will admit I was skeptical and I was like, oh, I'm probably not going to notice an effect. I've taken some right. before I didn't notice an effect. And it, I totally felt the difference like a few seconds later. So explain what, what the difference is. What are you guys doing differently that causes that? And then can you explain to people what that process that you did with me was? Yeah, totally. So um, basically, uh, so loading dose is common with a lot of different compounds. You need to take more to really get the system moving. It's kind of like priming a pump. 
Um, and if you don't get the right amount in, it's not going to turn over and engage the engine. So essentially, we've been idling artificially our endocannabinoid system engine uh, through this uh, prohibition where we artificially cut it out of the diet in the 40s. And because our body has co-evolved with producing cannabinoids internally to feed the system, but has for thousands of years relied on this external source, just like we talked about with, with B12, the amount of receptors, of cannabinoid receptors, it's called upregulation. So it, it, our bodies put out way more of these cannabinoid receptors, hoping to catch and basically competing with itself and the different systems to try and grab the cannabinoids uh, when they can. And so uh, we've got you, what the, the key with a loading dose is getting enough in so that all the receptors that are upregulated get uh, targeted and, and primed, at which point the system kicks into gear and then it down regulates receptor sites. So there's actually, um, you lower the amount needed. So with THC, it's the opposite where well, it, most people actually need a loading dose at the beginning with THC. But um, you build the tolerance with THC, whereas with CBD, and I'm talking, anytime I say CBD, I mean full spectrum, uh, not CBD isolate. It's, it's similar with isolate, but there's actually dosage is harder and, it, and, it, and it's less effective on multiple fronts. But um, high CBD, full spectrum, you actually have an inverse tolerance on average over time. Uh, so you need less and less to get the same results. Um, and and the issue is, is most people need around, as modern humans, if they're not having a dietary intake of cannabinoids, uh, at least 500 milligrams of a fat-soluble CBD to properly load the system and, and, and really get their endocannabinoid system working. Uh, 500, and that's a minimum. Most people typically need a little bit more, um, up to like 1,500 on average. But essentially, 500 milligrams of fat-based CBD would retail someone around $300. And the concentrations of the bottles are typically, if it's not an isolate, now people are cranking up the content of CBD through adding isolate to it. But around 500 milligrams is typically around a very strong-dosed bottle. So you'd have to drink the entire bottle to even get a chance of engaging the system. And most of the time you need more than that. So it, the, most people who've tried CBD, they did not get an adequate dose to properly engage their system. And uh, as a result, didn't feel much. They probably, what, what it would target without fully engaging the system and getting it online is the CBD will still go in and, uh, target these receptors called vanilloid or capsicum receptors, and that helps modulate pain. They may get a little bit of benefit from anxiety. Um, in all likelihood, that's at best a little bit of pain modulation and anxiety help. Uh, and at at worst, it, they're getting placebo. Now, placebo is great. I mean, if it's working, uh, that's awesome. But it does not get a properly optimized endocannabinoid system, which truly does make a tremendous difference in your entire uh, life and experience where you actually, you will feel it, uh, notably without placebo. So what we figured out is we figured out how to encapsulate the oil in these little bubbles of water, uh, doing essentially what our bodies naturally do with a five or with a fat based, uh, CBD, but we do it outside of the body using only certified organic plants 
and don't have any loss like the body does. So if you take one bottle of our 250 milligram full spectrum uh, with the technology and the water solubility, you'd have to eat at least 20,000 milligrams or, or uh, uh, 5,000 milligrams. Our, our data is showing over 100x, but uh, essentially um, at least it, it, it's, it's at least 5,000 milligrams of a fat-based CBD uh, when you're only taking 250. So uh, from 20x and now new data is coming in and, and verifying that it's actually probably closer to over 100 times more bioavailable milligram for milligram. Um, so you can actually get an effective loading dose. One dropper or two droppers is enough to hit that equivalent of 500 fat-based CBD or more in a single dose cost-effectively, uh, which will then engage the system. And so the, the, the reason why water encapsulation is important is because we've got these, this water layer covering our, our, our mouth and our, and our stomach and our gut, and it serves as like the gatekeeper to the body because once a fat soluble compound gets in to the bloodstream it can travel anywhere it wants to in the body so we've evolved with this gatekeeper that naturally blocks fat-based compounds from getting into the bloodstream and so it has to sit in the gut and then the liver comes in and, and essentially your bodies process it and determine what is uh synthetic or poison or not you know recognized and it will try and pull that out through the liver and detoxification pathways and once it's scanned, it, then the body produces uh, the bile from, uh, and, and that bile injection essentially nano encapsulates the oil for any type of uh, into these nano bubbles water, at which it can then pass through the water and the gatekeeper. Once it's in, out of the water bubble and go about their business. And so we do that process using certified organic plants that break down into amino acids once it's, uh, in, once, once it's made it into the bloodstream, which is immediate. So when you take this formulation, the body recognizes it as water, absorbs it immediately, and then it diffuses out of the water bubbles. The body that uses that, the water bu bubbles in that plant and breaks it down into energy source and the cannabinoids go about and uh, effectively target. And there's not the same loss. Whereas when you eat a fat-based and it's in the gut, uh, by the time it gets encapsulated, like I said earlier, 90% of them have been destroyed by the stomach acid and the liver enzymes. Uh, so it's a very inefficient system. That's why it takes about 30 minutes for someone to feel it. And with our process, because it gets in immediately, um, you will notice the, the, the endocannabinoid system engaging typically under 30 seconds, which I believe is what you were saying was your experience. You felt it uh, and, and actually felt it. And, and so we were, were able to deliver an effective dose range in a very cost-effective manner and have the results be in, felt within 30 seconds, not 30 minutes, and not after typically with a fat-based people have to take it for weeks and weeks to, to eventually kind of build enough up in the system to, to get that engagement. And that's not common. Yeah, that was definitely my experience was within, I would say probably like closer to like 15 or 20 seconds, somewhere in that range, although I wasn't counting. Um, I definitely like felt it. It's hard to describe, but felt it hit my brain and also kind of like where it traveled throughout my body. And I felt this like cool slash warm yes. feeling and it was like, very instantaneous. Yes. Yep. So that, that it, it basically, it gets in the second that it touches and because of the bioavailability, it's enough to engage it. And that system 
when the endocannabinoid system turns online, it is kind of like people describe it as like a buzzy kind of tingling warmth, um, electric feeling almost. Uh, and, and essentially it, it, we're turning back on a system that all of our ancestors had online through their natural dietary intake of cannabinoids. And it's the way we're designed to feel. And it, and it feels really good that you feel focused. Most people describe feeling like more grounded, more present, and, uh, just kind of like a light bulb turned on that we didn't realize we were missing and that clarity that kind of comes about. And then you wake up and you feel good in the morning. We're meant to feel good. We've just artificially depleted the, the, the system designed to keep all of our other systems healthy and operating. And so we, that kind of sluggish, bad feeling in the morning uh, that a lot of people feel and the pain and, and anxiety and, and sleep issues that they are not always, but in many cases, an, actually a nutrient deficiency, an endocannabinoid nutrient deficiency. And so once you get it back up online, you feel awesome. And then another thing that's, that's unique, I think, is, uh, is that the, the dosage needs will ch actually change on a daily basis, depending on the oxidative stress load for that day. So if you're like, sleeping well now and you're 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 getting adequate other nutrient supply and exercising and things are just cruisy you're going to see a downtrend um of, of need of dosage uh over time but if all of a sudden then you have like a stressful day and then you got to fly somewhere your uh, optimal dosage range is going to move back up again. And the issue with fat-based, so there's actually what's called, which is common with a lot of bioactive compounds, is uh, a bell curve of efficacy, meaning that more is actually less effective than slightly less. So more is not always greater. It's not if, and there's actually multiple bell curves of efficacy. No one really has cracked the code on why that is, but Essentially, there's these optimal ratios, uh, and you can go up, and these bell curves are shifting left and right on the dosage vertical or, or axis um, horizontally every, every single day, depending on oxidative stress. And so the issue is, is, is figuring out what, like a lot of questions people ask is like, how do I know how much to take? And with a fat-based CBD, the issue is, is you're shooting in the dark. There's your body, there's no, we don't have a mechanism developed yet to say that that 10 milligrams that worked yesterday, you may need only five milligrams. And again, 10 and five, I mean, that, that's way in, in terms of actual effect in the body, that's way too low to get, to engage the system, but let's say you've been taking it for months and, and you can start to get it to some response in that range. Uh, it, 10 may have been the sweet spot, but now you need uh, five that, that next day, but you, you'll have no idea that that's what you need other than you won't feel it work as much. And so what we discovered because ours gets in immediately, uh, it will actually modulate the CB receptors of the tongue and it will change flavor from bitter uh, when we're in the valley of the bell curves are less effective and it'll get sweeter and sweeter and sweeter and it will turn to very, very sweet like honey. And if you keep going, and that's, that, that's at the peak of one of the efficacy curves. And if you keep going, it will go back and uh, to more and more bitter as you go down the efficaciousness and then uh, enter another valley. And then you keep taking it and it will get sweeter and sweeter and sweeter again. And so each, you can literally trace out the efficaciousness of where what you're taking on a daily basis and pinpoint those bell curve peaks every single time. 
um, and not be shooting in the dark and never miss a dose. Um, and, and so each curve, the higher you go up in terms of sweet spots, the more systems that the body can actually pull into balance. And so the endocannabinoid system uh, operates in what's called triage effect. And so it essentially is looking at which system is most out of balance and then deploying the cannabinoids to that system that it determines is most out of balance. So you could have, um, like, let's say you've got, uh, you're feeling anxious all of a sudden and you think that's your number one issue. You take it and it turns to sweet and then the, it feels kind of better, but it's not a hundred percent better. What, what that means is that anxiety didn't make the, the cut or didn't really make it high up on the priority order. And it could have been focusing that your gut needed uh, to have cannabinoids more than your nervous system. And so what we found is if, if the first sweet spot and what you think is the number one thing going on doesn't make the cut, if you redose and it will go back to bitter and then go back to sweet again, the second sweet spot, uh, almost 100% of the time, what we think was number one does make the cut. Um, and so you can keep going higher and higher on sweet spots to just maintain more and more systemic, um, basically deploy more uh, to keep more systems at optimal levels. Um, and you cannot take too much, which is, I mean, there's a point where your all that your body would do is just flush it out, but there's no need to do that. And you'd have to take like half a bottle to a bottle and then at which point you've probably hit all of your, your systems. But, um, there's no, what's called, uh, LD 50, which means, uh, 50% of the test population died from, it was a lethal dose. The, LD50 for CBD is uh, substantially higher than water's LD50. So essentially, you would have to drown from the water content in the plant uh, before you would get sick from the CBD, which is pretty fascinating. It's essentially safer than water. <laughs> if you're talking about like you guys with the water-soluble version, with I would guess with like a liposome or anything that's got fat in it, you could eventually hit that ratio faster based on the other ingredients, right? In any particular formulation. Um, you mean hit the hit the like the hit fifty or whatever? Like it could potentially. No, no. The, I mean, no, because well, our formulation makes it way more potent. So in reality, you would get there faster than a liposome or a fat-based CBD, but, but it's like we're talking, you'd have to be drinking. You would have to drown from the water content in the plant or day before you would get any type of toxicity reaction in the body. So you could drink gallons and gallons and gallons and gallons of it. And at which point the water present would get you sicker than the CBD would. But it, and to that note, I mean, that makes it really essentially safe for almost any age or any person, right? Because if it can't essentially be overdosed on, is it pretty much safe for anyone? Yeah, um, all evidence and historical usage, right? So if, if you know, basically, we, like, as it was the most commonly used vegetable throughout our history on every continent, uh, minus, uh, haven't found evidence of Inuit culture having it before Western intervention or colonization because the Vikings actually, so there's actually cannabis was, was present in North America prior to European colonization, probably from the Vikings as well as the Chinese explorers. Uh, but basically every other continent, uh, again, Australia, 
interestingly enough, was, was in all intents and purposes uh, founded predominantly for the purpose of cultivating uh, hemp. Pr prior to that, the Aboriginal population did not have, there's no evidence of it being there beforehand, but every other continent, uh, minus Antarctica, uh, had it and for thousands of years and in the food supply. So the mom would be eating it, the kids would be eating it through the eggs or the milk. Uh, interestingly enough, like in Nepal, for example, there's regions where like, despite um, it being criminalized, it still grows completely wild, including the US, uh, although hemp's now legal um, for the most part uh, within the guidelines of the farm bill. We can get into that later, but uh, basically there's regions where it grows completely wild and um, Nepal is one of those regions. And so in Nepal, they eat uh, yaks and they also eat the butter made from yaks and milk. And so I asked this, uh, when I was my, my Lyft driver, he was from he was Nepal. And I said, hey, do you, does cannabis grow wild? He's like, oh yeah, it's everywhere. And I said, so, so you guys eat the yaks and you eat the milk or whatever. He's like, yeah, uh, of course. And I said, so do, do the yaks like to eat the, the hemp and the cannabis plants? And he goes, oh yeah, it's one of their favorites. Like, and it further demonstrates what we're finding. Uh, so they've had pretty much an uninterrupted um, supply. Uh, and, and we're going to run a study on that population to look at their, their uh, cannabinoid levels. But that's, anyways, the um, children and mothers, because it's passed through the breast milk, and actually anandamide is in the breast milk, and, and as, as through artificial prohibition, it's actually in less concentrations than what's really ideal to activate a child's endocannabinoid system. But the endocannabinoid system is one of the first systems that develops in utero, and then through breastfeeding and anandamide delivery, it actually activates the endocannabinoid system, which is vital for uh, development of all the other systems and, and starting uh, proper hunger uh, levels and all sorts of stuff. And so, uh, essentially, when they were having cannabinoids, that also gets passed through the breast milk. And so in terms of logic and historical data, yes. And then it's still, it's better to err on the side of caution. We need to aggregate more data. Um, but the most recent tests that were conducted was actually on higher THC, but Jamaican cannabis, all the land races and all the essentially the, the non-hybridized forms of this plant had different ratios of THC to CBD, but predominantly it was high CBD, low THC. And then some, some varietals um, had higher THC, but they always had higher CBD. But this woman wanted to see what the effects of cannabis consumption was in utero and, and for children. And she realized she had to go to a population where it was uh, socially and culturally acceptable. And in Jamaica, the women, not all women, but uh, it was accepted that they would drink cannabis tea during pregnancy, as did uh, Queen Victoria took cannabis uh, during pregnancy, um, well documented. Um, but essentially, she looked at the population of mothers who did not drink the cannabis tea versus the mothers who did. And what she found was that um, starting from birth, the on cognitive development and, and, and uh, other health factors, that the, the kids whose moms used cannabis tea were vastly uh, more advanced in, in cognition and other uh, body factors than those who were, did not, for the moms who did not. And she studied the population for nine years until she called it, she, she ended the study, because uh, she was looking at it for nine years. And that for the entire course of that, the children remained uh, developmentally superior 
to the kids whose parents did not have a, a or whose mom did not have an intake of cannabinoids. So, um, and yes, and so that any, if you're a vertebrae and you're a modern human, you really do need cannabinoids. I think it depends what we recommend. Obviously, anytime you, you take something, you should talk with a practitioner or, or get advice, especially if kids um, don't have a notable endocannabinoid deficiency issue or other issue. Uh, it, you know, to obviously talk with your pediatrician or, or make your choice, but, um, of when to, as children, we have healthier cannabinoid systems, uh, as oxidation exposure increases, then that's when we start to get more and more deficiency as we age. Um, but for historical use, all kids were having a regular intake of high levels of CBD for thousands of years without issue. Um, one caveat would be we need more data on too, uh, is if you are taking medication that says don't take with grapefruit, um, there's limited data showing that it can act like grapefruit, but also another study showed that it did the opposite effect in these digestive enzymes, which is much more in line with how cannabinoids work in the body or CBD in particular. THC is more like a scalpel. It's kind of single, single directional, whereas CBD is much more, it's an adapted adaptogen. And so if you've got an overactive immune system, it will help modulate and bring it into balance. Or if you have an underactive immune system, it will modulate it and bring it up into balance. And so in all likelihood, it's doing the same with digestive enzymes. That being said, it's better to err on the side of caution. Uh, and if you're taking medication that says don't take with grapefruit, talk to your doctor first and what levels you are because CBD can potentially act like grapefruit. That's the only um, caveat. Oh, also actually for people with diabetes, uh, they'll find that a healthy endocannabinoid system regulates healthy insulin levels and it will uh, rapidly with the right, you know, threat, proper uh, dosage will rapidly balance the blood sugar out. Uh, and so you need to monitor your blood sugar and not give yourself a bunch of insulin that you were the same levels of insulin you were giving before taking it because uh, you'll need less and less uh, pretty quickly. That opens up an interesting question about uh, CBD and the potential for anti-aging because I, yes. I know right now there's a lot of popularity of using, for instance, metformin, which is a insulin regulating diabetes drug as an anti-aging compound because of the ways that it can reduce the damage of too much insulin and too much sugar in the body. So I'm curious if it has that um, effect. I probably, you guys haven't studied this directly, but do you think there's potentially an anti-aging component for some hundred percent there is. Yeah. Um, so number one age typically, so the way that we age is, is telomeres, right? Uh, shortening. They're these telomeres are at a cellular level. They instruct the cells uh, how to recode and rebuild. And so as, as oxidation uh, hits them, they get damaged. As they get shorter, the copies of the cells get more and more blurry, so to speak. And that is why we look like that's how we age. Uh, so we know for a fact that cannabinoids uh, are extremely potent antioxidants um, and much more. Uh, and so they'll buffer the oxidative response from even hitting the cells, thus protecting the telomeres that way. Uh, and there's more, there's limited, but we're, we're confident in finding that, uh, that it will replicate the data showing that it can actually lengthen your telomeres and thus literally as anti-aging at a cellular level. Um, but a hundred percent in terms of, which has been very, very well studied and documented is that, healthy endocannabinoid system leads to 
uh, neurogenesis in the brain, uh, meaning it will actually help regrow brain cells. Um, also data, uh, and now, so our company, I, we have a biotech division, so I'm talking about it in terms of the biotech side because um, of FDA stuff, uh, but we've got data and, and, and patents on actually regrowing myelin sheathing of nerves and actually regenerating uh, damaged nerves and regrowing them. And so uh, 100%, it's spec if you, it, having a healthy endocannabinoid system is the most effective policy to have a healthy optimized body uh as long as you obviously you got to put in other inputs like healthy nutrients but um and exercise but it actually increases your ability to recover and exercise through um reducing inflammation levels and you've got cannabinoid receptors in your fascia and it actually helps your muscles repair faster so you can build uh muscle mass quicker so we work with different professional athletes and then also Cognitive youth, it, it increases neuroplasticity. We're actually going to be working with the Flow Genome uh, Project. We're in talks with them right now. Um, but biochemically, flow state or being in the zone um, where you're, you're just cranking and everything's operating properly, it actually turns out that it's a peak of anandamide in the brain with the right levels of dopamine and serotonin. And so because CBD naturally increases anandamide levels and the endocannabinoid system regulates and has receptors for in every system of cell and neuron or cellular tissue in the brain, um, we're finding that it can biochemically get you into flow state and maintain it uh, longer. We're going to study that with them. Um, so yes, it's, it's the best health optimization you can possibly do for yourself is to have a healthy endocannabinoid system and the key is getting enough in to at the, the right dose level dosage levels to be able to maintain that in this modern environment and um to really optimize you need a minimum of 500 um, milligrams a day to start yeah that makes sense um with the anti-aging component even just in light of what you said about oxidative stress because yeah. i think like we, our modern lifestyle is kind of built for oxidative stress between yep. like the things you think of that can increase it, which like smoking and drinking too much and fried food, which hopefully nobody's doing, um, but also just flying or eating out or not getting enough sleep or even heavy Lots workouts. Like all of these things contribute to oxidative stress. So to have a tool in the toolkit to help battle that is huge. This episode is sponsored by Fabletics. So here's the deal. If you are anything like me and you pretty much work out five to six days a week and sauna daily, you go through an incessant amount of gym clothes like I do every day, which also means loads and loads of dirty laundry. And I found myself for a while because I was traveling so much, always buying more gym wear to avoid the issue. But I'm also not willing to shell out hundreds of dollars for the really pricey types of gym wear. I'm not gonna name names, but I was tired of cheap gym wear that wore out quickly with lots of washing. My solution to this predicament is a brand called Fabletics. If you haven't heard of them, I think you're missing out because it's a fashion-focused activewear brand that was founded by Kate Hudson with a mission to empower women by making a healthy, active lifestyle accessible to everyone because of the exceptional price point and because these pieces are super cute and versatile. So no matter if you are ready to go to hot yoga class or crush it in CrossFit or just go for a stroll in the park, Fabletics has you covered and they carry gym wear that is suitable for any type of workout. And plus they're cute enough, I find myself wearing their clothes everywhere, not just to work out. Um, I'll just throw on one of their pullover tops for a cute outfit. Before I forget to tell you, Fabletics is offering an incredible deal that you don't want to miss. 
you can get two pairs of leggings for only $24, which is a $99 value when you sign up as a VIP. You can go to fabletics.com forward slash wellness mama to take advantage of the deal. That's F-A-B-L-E-T-I-C-S dot com forward slash wellness mama to get two leggings for only $24 and free shipping on orders over $49. International shipping is available and there's absolutely no commitment to purchase. With your first order, you can check it out and you can cancel anytime if you're not super happy. Check it out fabletics.com forward slash wellness mama. This episode is brought to you by Genexa, the first ever organic and non-GMO medicines that use patented technology to create formulas that work without the dyes, the artificial sweeteners, or the harsh preservatives that are found in some medicines. The company was founded by two dads on a mission to find better products for their own kids. I love the commitment to quality that Genexa has, and I love how well their products work. One of my faves is their homeopathic Arnica tablets. I recently got back into powerlifting and running, and the first few weeks, okay, the first few months were a little rough. Their, their Arnica Advantage and the Pain Crush Tropical cream that they have were a lifesaver for, for me during those months. To shop those and their full line of organic and non-GMO medicines, you can go to genexa.com forward slash wellness mama and use the code wellness for 20% off of your order. Again, that's G-E-N-E-X-A.com forward slash wellness mama with the code wellness for 20% off of your order. And the other thing I think that's really um, fascinating with this, to go back to it for a minute, is the terpene thing, because that was something I had never heard about, even in a lot of research with CBD and something I've been playing with ever since you showed me, um, basically, you had me smell plants, essentially, while I was taking the CBD and then noticed the response. So now I've been doing that in my own life with like lavender at night and peppermint in the morning, whereas I used to only take CBD at night because it would put me to sleep. So can you explain kind of practical level, like how to get that terpene? terpene terpene interaction correctly yeah so um basically the only way for them to 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 time each other properly is to, to meet up is to get um is to inhale them so you like an essential oil or a plant or like an orange for the the limonene you you smell that and you're actually pulling these compounds up into crossing blood brain barrier that's the really only effective way to get it into the system other than through like uh, in, through the lungs, um, and then you take. Uh, so only our technology enables you to actually have the timing be right, so that they can interact and and meet each other. Because ours gets in immediately, the terpenes deploy immediately, essentially in the body. So if you take uh, titrate your dosage of our formula to where you get a sweet spot and an optimal ratio, but it'll turn to very sweet, like honey flavor, and then smell those essential oils or, or, uh, citrus fruit. You're, they'll time up perfectly and you can custom curate where the cannabinoids are going to go in the body and, and, and essentially the mood for what you want. So like, a, like you said, like a peppermint oil, the terpenes in that are stimulating pining and like pine trees also is very much uh, stimulating for, for the brain and, and focus. So you smell that and then that's what your experience will be. But if you can uh, literally on the spot, you can redose and then smell um, like thyme, for instance, has myrosine in it, as do mangoes. Myrosine is very sedative. Uh, lavender is relaxing. Uh, and if you smell that, and after you've just smelled the peppermint, you're feeling, you'll feel much more alert. Then you take 
redose to the next sweet spot, smell the time, you'll notice a completely gear shift and you'll be much more sedated and relaxed. And so you can literally custom curate using essential oils or terpenes uh, to have the effect you want the cannabinoids to do in the body. Now, that being said, you're not going to guide them. The, the body's endocannabinoid system has its triage le- list and it knows way better than we do. Uh, but you can still, there's times where, let's say your body is saying, look, you're, you're running a million miles an hour and we need you to sleep and repair. So we're going to, the endocannabinoid system is going to naturally uh, sedate you and like how you experience how you're tired right? You can bypass it gently by then saying, you know what, that's great. I'm, but I can't sleep right now. I got to work. And you smell the peppermint and you'll shift it so that you can basically gently nudge it out of, out of its triage list and, and, and pop, have what you want get targeted first in line, but you're not going to do it in a way that could be damaging. Like it won't allow it to like throw anything off because it's totally non-toxic. The cannabinoids don't go out of the fat layer until about 15 minutes. It's faster and more bioavailable. It's about an 8x. Our delivery is just a single layer of water, and we're showing over, well over 20. That is showing over 100x. It's way more bioavailable, but it also has an immediate onset, whereas a liposome, it's better than a fat base. It's about eight times more potent, but it doesn't diffuse into the system for about 15 uh, to 20 minutes, sometimes 10, depending on how they do the liposome. But the timing won't work. You'd have to take it and know when it kicks in and then run and then smell it, essentially. And with a fat-based, it's 30 minutes and you'd have to smell it right when you kind of feel it. So it's just no other system is really effective at being able to curate these different outcomes. Now, if you have a vape pen, um, you can, that's where terpenes will work, so, but you'd have to use different strains or smell it. Um, it's less bioavailable than our formula, but that's 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 the only other way to do it. That makes sense. And I've said for years that in most cases, I think the best and only way to really get the benefits and use essential oils is by diffusing them, using them in aromatherapy ways, because yes. it's easy to ignore, but we really that is how they impact the body very in a very effective way. They're most. also safer that way than for instance if you're drinking them. Yes. Um, so I Never love that this kind of dovetails perfectly with that. Yes. So you mentioned the the farm bill, and I know that the hemp issue has been a semi-controversial one right now in the U.S. I'm curious, being both in the industry and then I'm sure the research you're doing on this all the time, um, what do you see as the future of hemp in the U.S.? Yeah, so uh, I think we're just kind of scratching the surface of, um, so we've been talking really about like cannabinoids and terpenes and, and um, optimizing health in the internal environment. Um, what's fascinating about this plant and the reason why it's been one of the most used vegetables and plants throughout uh, millennia is that it also has a plethora of other uses. So the term canvas comes from cannabis. Uh, that's and then World War II, right after they made it, uh, they, artific- they put prohibition in place, they all of a sudden realized that they needed hemp for um, nautical rope and industrial usage. And so they created this temporary hemp for victory gardens. If you go and look up hemp for victory, you'll find some awesome uh, old propaganda on, on how it's the most patriotic thing you can do is grow hemp. Uh, it was literally right after they made it illegal. And one of the, the real reason that cannabis was made illegal was not for the high THC varietals, 
Um, that was what was pushed, but in reality, um, it was, uh, you, people have been making hemp paper for thousands of years, uh, but, but actually the first draft of the, of the U.S. Constitution was written on hemp. The first flag was made out of hemp. Uh, but because it's so strong and why it's so effective for fiber, it's naturally antimicrobial um, and antifungal, so which makes it the most effective rope for nautical use. It doesn't rot in water, and that's due to the cannabinoids um, and terpenes in it. Um, but uh, it's extremely strong. Uh, so it was very hard to process efficiently actually thomas jefferson said the most patriotic thing you could do for the country is to sow hemp and him and washington grew it and they talked about the indica varieties now the indica varieties would have been high thc um because that particular region had higher thc producing cultivars so they definitely were using both uh, and growing both um and it's well documented in the pharmacopoeia as well but uh, essentially jefferson when he was at the u.s patent as a, as a patent officer um, he discovered a way to make um, uh, hemp decortication or separating the outer hard part with the inner rope parts uh, using a, a, a horse thrasher, essentially. And, and then he said he decided to open source that patent uh, because he thought it was so important uh, for the country. So at, but at that point, hemp or paper pulp from trees was more effective uh, and efficient than hemp pulp because it was so hard. 19, in 1936, the U.S. Department of Agriculture figured out how to make it an efficient decorticator that uh, made hemp, product, or hemp paper production equally as efficient to uh, wood pulp paper production. Now, one acre of hemp produces uh, Four, the equivalent of four acres of old growth forest worth of paper. So, and it grows in 40 days. It also protects the soil and it's got a plethora of other uses. Uh, and so it would it completely annihilated the lumber industry for paper. And William Randolph Hearst uh, owned all, pretty much all of the uh, lumber industry in the States and also owned all the newspapers, which were printed on the paper. And then at the same time, um, the, the DuPont family came up with synthetic rope. Now with the decortication, hemp rope, it, because of its antimicrobial and, and its strength properties could have competed with rayon essentially. So they formed together. There was growing um, racial tensions in the country because cannabis was in South America and North America prior to European uh, colonization. But that's uh, basically um, people from Mexico has a, had a long tradition of of smoking higher THC varietals as well as high CBD varietals and teas. It's well documented. Um, and then also African-Americans and musicians were using higher THC. It was actually socially acceptable, completely socially acceptable to, to use high THC as well as uh, other varieties that there's a, uh, if there's an old high THC candy that was used in actually in the Civil War, both generals talked about how they, every soldier should have it, every house should have it, it's the best thing, it's safe and, and, and it helps your health. Um, but essentially they targeted on these racial tensions, created an issue of THC, used that as the, the demonizing factor and rapidly passed um, uh, legislation with Atzlinger to make it illegal. 
Uh, and it was really the best PR campaign that's ever been run because they took something that was ubiquitously consumed and was the lifeblood of the economy uh, and met from centuries and millennia in reality uh, and made it illegal overnight through controlling of all the news. Since he owned all the newspapers, they were able to, to run the campaign, use fear, um, and essentially artificially deplete the population of cannabinoids and all the other industrial usages. So fast forward, now we've got, um, thankfully, that was a very minor blip in, our, in human's history, right? For thousands of years, it's been a continuous supply. We artificially cut it out of the 40s, about a, you know, just under a century now, we've got it coming back in. The rest of the world was able to continue to grow it. Um, some hemp was very much de designed for fiber, so that's what it looks like, you know, the, the tall, skinny, high fibrous varietals, but legally, hemp is a legal definition. So now we've got hemp cultivars that, that are uh, very resinous and um, high CBD and cannabinoid and quality producers of terpenes that are legally hemp because the THC is below 0.3. But it wasn't until 2014 that the US definition of hemp included the flowers again initially. Prior to that, the exemption for hemp was uh, fiber. So the stalks, the stems, not the leaves, not the flowers. Those were exempted in the legislation because we still relied on them for industrial use, but we could not grow it in the US. Uh, it had to be imported and the oil, the CBD had to be extracted from the stalks and stems. Uh, now with purification technologies, you just needed a lot more. It just was inefficient at, at achieving it and caused it to be way more expensive. Um, but then in 2014, the farm bill passes that redefines hemp as any cannabis plant whose THC is below 0.3 on a dry weight basis, including the flowers and the, and the resins and um, essentially redefined it, opened it up for U.S. production and for flower uh, sourcing, which made it way, way more efficient and, and uh, the development of much different types of varietals and cultivars. Um, but uh, it put it in the guardrails of it has to be linked through the, the, the farm bill language, which stipulates that it has to be grown in the state where it's legal to grow hemp. And then simultaneously, it has to be linked with an institute of higher learning. So, that's happened throughout the U.S. since 2014. You could take the same plant, grow it in your backyard. That would be a Schedule One plant. You take it and grow it under the Farm Bill guidelines and guardrails. The first line of the Farm Bill clause states notwithstanding of the Controlled Substances Act, meaning that it is exempt from and completely not defined by the CSA. And the same exact plant uh, goes from Schedule One to not scheduled at all. Um, now with the new farm bill, uh, there's thankfully much better legislation that's opening it up and saying that it's com completely, no matter where you're, it's grown, it's not a controlled plant. You don't have to be in the confines of an institute of higher learning being registered with them. Uh, and the USDA is going to run it. Now it's got caught up in other stuff, completely non-related to hemp in the current farm bill. Uh, but it, that clause will not go away. And once it passes, it's going to further open it up and kind of open up the floodgates for, for distribution and, and innovation. But um, that's on the CBD side. But then on the innovative side, we also figured out how to uh, scale and manufacture supercapacitor batteries out of hemp stock. We're partnered with uh, Lawrence Berkeley Labs in accelerating that technology uh, where we can essentially power computers or grids or 
you name it, using a capacitor, essentially graphene out of the hemp waste. That's going to be uh, really um, game changing. And that's just one of the, you can also make concrete out of it, concrete replacement called hempcrete that is bulletproof, fireproof, antimicrobial, carbon sequestering. So you can make carbon negative buildings to sink CO2 all out of the different part of the plant and waste product, quote unquote waste. Um, and simultaneously it builds topsoil. Uh, so, um, and quality of soil, it doesn't compact soil, it breaks up compacted soil. So it, it literally catalyzes uh, benefits in, in, in so many different industries from papers to plastics. You can make, Actually, Audi is making plastics uh, using hemp plastic in some of their cars. Henry Ford actually made a Model T that was made out of hemp PLA blend. Uh, and the diesel engine can run off hemp seed uh, biodiesel or biofuel. It was designed, he was using hemp seeds as the, as the fuel when he designed it. Um, and the plastics are six times stronger than steel. So we're about to see a major uh, evolution of industry, actually kind of going back to the roots a little bit, but now applying modern technology to innovate it. And if you look at the, the course of, of every iteration of kind of epoch of, of our evolution, going from hunter-gatherer to agricultural, there's a major oxidative stress uptick from that event, but people were using cannabis. It was the first plant, one of the first, if not the first plants domesticated. We were consuming it. We got an adequate uptake in an increase of cannabinoid consumption, and we were able to handle the oxidative stress uh, increase that came with that change. Now you go to the industrial era, cannabinoids were commonplace and in the diet, people were using them. We had more oxidative stress exposure from that era, from you know, disease and pollutants or whatever, but the cannabinoid intake was steady and would have increased um, as it got more uh, documented and, and studied, which did. Uh, so it was there, but then it also led to the, you know, the evolution, not just from a physical level, but it led to the advancements at the next stage. So from nautical exploration to industrial, uh, and there's actually evidence showing that from hunter-gatherer to uh, agricultural, it was the, the, the uh, discovery of, of nets and the technology of nets to be able to fish in one spot that led to an agricultural society hemp fiber rope was is in that region and probably it was hemp, but we can't prove it yet. Um, but anyways, every single advancement, hemp has been one of the primary, or cannabis, which is hemp, uh, has been one of the primary drivers and catalysts of innovation and advancement while simultaneously providing the nutrients to handle the subsequent oxidation bump. And so now in the age of technology, uh, we artificially depleted ourselves. And, we, and if you look at the um, correlations of, of, of the different issues and, and you line them up, they're pretty astonishing. Um, and then seeing how rapidly they can be uh, reversed. We're talking in certain issues within weeks, which is indicative of a nutrient deficiency, just like uh, scurvy. Uh, it takes two weeks to reverse it. We're seeing um, actually Stanford University came out with a study saying that they believe endocannabinoid deficiency leads to neurodegeneration, such as Alzheimer's, and Salk verified it, that trace amounts of THC strip the beta amyloid plaque out of the brain, and then high CBD increases neurogenesis. Um, I've personally witnessed someone who couldn't talk for three years with Alzheimer's talk in two weeks at 85% capacity and stabilized ever since, uh, which again is indicative of a nutrient deficiency. Um, but uh, 
with those advancements now in the age of technology, we can reintroduce it, get healthy endocannabinoid systems. Uh, it, by increasing flow state, it enables us to access our kind of unconscious genius in a way uh, that our operating capacity and, and intelligence rapidly, exponentially increases in flow. Uh, and, and we can actually handle these new advancements um, of all of this information overload that it causes oxidation. We increase our cannabinoid intake, get the system back up online, and I believe we can emerge into uh, completely transition from a petroleum-based um, uh, dependency. Now, at this next iteration, hemp can truly uh, get us off of petroleum uh, and into regenerative symbiotic um, design, as well as when you have a healthy endocannabinoid system, you're much more likely to, it literally increases uh, neurogenesis in the, um, in the prefrontal cortex and the corpus callosum, which, which bridges the left and right hemisphere of the brain. And then it activates this, uh, the parasympathetic nervous system, which causes us to be leave our kind of 4F response. And when we're in the amygdala and in the 4F, we see things as other and scarcity. So uh, there's actual biological neurochemistry and, and, and regions of the brain that cause us to see things as threats and others, which with endocannabinoid deficiency kind of artificially keeps us there for the most part. When you get it back online, you, the parasympathetic engages and the increase of neurogenesis in the prefrontal, which enables us to see things as interconnected and working together in symbiosis as opposed to uh, kind of a parasitic relationship. Um, and so from the biological and environmental iterations to the neurological and biochemical environment, the pattern holds true where it's, it, it promotes uh, synergy and symbiosis. Uh, and we're literally seeing with this legislation, you had Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer giggling and coming together to legalize hemp, uh, and it's bridged the left and the right, and it, and, uh, it holds true at a biological level as well. So it's really exciting. I, I think we're just scratching the surface. There's so much to learn, um, and it's only going to further propel us into a better society for everyone. Um, and uh, that's, that's our vision and mission and ethos. I love that. And I share your hope, certainly. And I hope that we can continue to move away from things like plastics and petroleum-based chemicals so much. And I know that uh, you guys are offering a special deal just for the listeners of this podcast. And that will be in the show notes at wellnessmama.fm. So people, you guys can find the link and find the discount, which you can make sure you take advantage of. I know I order it at this point pretty much by the case because there are so many people in our, our family. Um, but just to remind us on a practical level as we end, um, basically someone would get this and then take it until it tastes sweet, right? That's kind of how you know it's the right dose for your body. Yes. Yeah. So you type, you, you want to titrate the dosage and we have dosage instructions. I'll send that to you so you can share as well, but it, it breaks it down. But if you take like a quarter dropper at a time, it will get sweeter and sweeter. And, and you put a quarter dropper in, wait five seconds, and then put another quarter dropper in, and it will get sweeter and sweeter. And keep repeating until it's almost 100% sweet like honey. And then just do drops, not quarter droppers, but just drops uh, at a time, and it will turn to very, very sweet. Now, if you keep going and all of a sudden starts going bitter again, that's okay. You just missed the first bell curve, and you would just retitrate. And, and you want to stop, ideally, when it tastes zero bitter, uh, but if it's like almost 100% sweet, you're close enough uh, to the peak of the efficaciousness for, to, to get what you need. Awesome. And again, those links 
links will be in the show notes for any of you guys who are driving or running. Um, don't worry about writing it down. Just check those out at wellnessmama.fm. Make sure you grab the discount. Um, but Will, thank you so much for your time. This has been like a history lesson and a science lesson and a story all mixed together. And I've thoroughly enjoyed it. And I know the listeners have too. So thank you for educating thank us. Thank you so much for having me. And of course, thanks to all of you for listening, for sharing your most valuable asset in your time with me today. And I hope that you'll join me again on the next episode of the Wellness Mama podcast. If you're enjoying these interviews, would you please take two minutes to leave a rating or review on iTunes for me? Doing this helps more people to find the podcast, which means even more moms and families can benefit from the information. I really appreciate your time and thanks as always for listening.